0: We talked last week, for those of you who weren't here and want to catch up, of course you know we have all of our series on CD, so you can pick them up. Last week was part one on sex in the body of Christ. We're using the body of Christ, that word, for a purpose, because I feel that too often we just talk about it in the neutral term, like sex in the church. No big deal. We are talking about infecting the body of Christ. This particular graphic was taken from Maxim Magazine that had this great article that we read through last week about how to score with girls in church. And we use that article to show that the media has such an impact on what we're doing. It has so many cues about our sexuality that we're taking from the media, but probably one of the most offensive articles I've seen in a magazine that I generally think is probably more offensive than any pornography magazine you could pick up just because of its suggestiveness. So if you are one of those people who subscribe to it, pick up our CD from last week. Maybe it'll change your mind. Last week, as you probably remember, we spent, I'd say, 20 minutes on the statistics in the church and outside the church. Long statistics that talk about how sexuality pervades every part of our society. We also found out that it pervades every part of the church. To summarize it, if you weren't here, the sad truth is basically for girls and young men between the ages of 13 and 22, the instance of sexual activity at every age is about the same inside the church as outside the church. There is a little bit of a delayed effect at 13 and 14 and 15, but by the time people are 16, it's all caught up. Tonight, we're going to go a little bit deeper into that. We're not going to just be going through statistics anymore. Last week was meant to really just open the debate up by showing that we have a serious problem. I've been feeling a little dry scripturally, so let's look at this together. This is Ephesians 5, 8 to 10, 13. For you were once in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, or the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is the light that makes everything visible. Tonight what we're going to be doing is something that's a little bit daring. That's what Exodus is about, going into topics that nobody goes into. Covering them in a different way. Tonight we're going to be exposing some of the sexuality in the church in a different way by looking at the lies that people use To justify their behavior. I think at this point, after last week's statistics, let's just take it as a given. People are just doing whatever they want to do in the church. Not everybody. I know there's people who are exceptions. And I applaud you if you're one of those exceptions. I don't know where you are right now. So I'm going to speak in generalizations about the church as a whole, not everybody in here. What we're going to do at the end of tonight is we're going to break up into small groups of maybe three or four. I want you to tell each person, you know, maybe you get to know somebody new and I want you to tell people how far you've gone sexually? No, I'm just kidding. Look at you guys. You're like, what? Isn't it amazing that like we don't think twice about what we do with our bodies in the presence of God, but we would never, ever break up into a small group and confess it to one another? And that really is the reason I just threw out that crazy example. It's just to get us thinking about confession in the right way getting us thinking about the fact that we would never break up into a small group and say, here's what I'm most ashamed of. Here's what I struggle with the most. And yet, it seems like we've just accepted the fact that God views everything, so we're like, eh. It's just a given. He's up there. He's watching. I think that should kind of disturb us a little bit, and that's what this verse is about. We once lived in darkness. And the light really exposes the darkness If you can take it tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to let the light expose the darkness a little bit tonight. We're going to let the light shine in on some of the things we don't talk about. You know, a lot of people ask why sexual sin is one of the worst sins that invades and attacks and addicts our bodies. Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons is because we don't talk about it. We bury it. How many people are honest enough to admit that outside of this church wall, they cuss? Isn't it funny how when you step onto a church campus, there are certain behavioral things that take place? Like, how many people do you see smoking at a church campus? <laughs> I'm not, I mean, you could say smoking hurts your body, and okay, you could take that view, or you could say, like, there's nothing in the Bible that says smoking is a sin. You know, I mean, if you take that definition, driving fast is a sin. Okay, we all agree, but how many people actually go outside and go, you know what, i got to leave the service, i got to smoke. But we know that like at least 10 or 15% of the congregation smokes, but they curb their behavior when they come to church. How about in here? Let's say like 25% of us are outside like, cussing, saying whatever we want to do, but you don't hear that in church. We curb our behavior for some reason and kind of hide it. And I think that's where it festers and it grows. Sexual sin is one of the areas that that does the most because we don't ever expose it to the light. So keep that in mind. Keep this verse in mind. Let's go to the next slide. Here's the question we're really tackling. If you want a big picture about this whole topic, this is the question that we're asking. Why is Christ having so little impact on the sexual behavior of those in the body of Christ? That's the question. If I could put it into a thesis, I'm asking you this question. Now, you don't have to answer it yet. I want you to think about it all night long, but keep this question in mind. Why is Christ having so little impact. We spent so much time on the surveys last week because I wanted to prove to you that there was a problem. But once you get past the survey and you get to the, okay, I agree, so sex is a problem in the church, that's not the end of the inquiry. The bigger inquiry is, why is Christ having no impact? He impacts the way you guys cuss or don't cuss. He impacts the way you behave around others about like things like stupid things like smoking. He even impacts the way you guys dress at church. But it seems like he doesn't impact this one area. And I want to answer that question. Now, I've thrown down a pretty big challenge, which we'll talk about in a minute. I'm not even sure we can meet it. But the challenge is that we as a group are going to come up with an answer that nobody else has come up with. Here's some of the things that are going on in the church. We carefully study the commandments to remain pure. We're going to look at some of them tonight. We promise that we're going to end this series with a talk on purity. But that's usually where the talk begins. We're not starting there. We're going to start by analyzing the problem much more deeply and then end with a talk on purity. Maybe by doing it backwards, we'll come up with a different solution. That hasn't really worked. You hear sermons in church. People talk about it. How about this one? There's numerous books on chastity and purity. I told you last week that I picked some up. I picked like three of them up and went to the bookstore, at the Christian bookstore, and the guy looked at me like pervert. I read actually two of them this week. I read uh, one. Uh, I won't make fun of them until next week, but there was some pretty goofy advice in there. I haven't read the one for men yet. I was just trying to see what they were telling women to do, see if I agreed with it. I was just like, oh, you got it so wrong here. How many sermons do we preach on it? Well, actually probably not enough, but when we do, it doesn't seem to make an impact. So that's another way the church has addressed it. How about true love waits? Anybody heard of that? I was reading a book, one of the books called Real Sex by Lauren Winner. She's writing this book as a young adult now. She's probably 30. It's a book about her struggle with chastity and her belief that it needs to be taught better in a different way to the church. Here's what she says. She says, True Love Waits is a popular abstinence program. And you say the following, Believing that True Love Waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, my friends, and my future mate and my future children to be sexually abstinent until the day I enter biblical marriage relationship. Her question is, at 29, I was wondering if I would ever meet anybody who's going to fit this ideal. I know that true love waits, but what was I waiting for? I wasn't really sure. They made it sound so easy. Like you just kind of take a pledge and you put on a ring and then it gets really easy. It's like a magic ring. You put it on and like all your desires go away. Didn't work out that way. 6,800 people were surveyed who did the true love waits program. Now, I don't know if you guys know anything about statistics, but statistics, you need a small sampling of a group of people to accurately predict something. You could probably sample the entire United States with 2,000 people. That would give you like plus or minus 2 or 3%. So if you survey 6,800 people who took the True Love Waits program, I mean, you're within like a statistical accuracy of plus or minus 0.05%. So these are pretty accurate statistics. They surveyed 6,800 people who took the program about when they finally had sex. Did they wait for marriage? What was the answer? No. After all the hoopla and the big class and the ring and whatever you put on, the average person waited an extra 18 months longer than their other person. That means some people waited less, and of course, some people waited more. So instead of having sex at 18, they had sex at 19. Here's another disturbing factor. Of those people that they surveyed in the True Love Waits program, they found out that of the people who took the promise when they finally had sex, those people who did didn't use birth control. Why? Why? Anybody can guess why <laughs> couldn't get it? No, they could get it. <laughs> spontaneous. It's better to make it feel like it's a moment of passion thing. If you go by contraception, it looks like you're pre-planning it, you know? So it's much better to have a baby as a result, you know, because that way it looks more spontaneous. Obviously that increases the level of sexually transmitted diseases, all that stuff. We don't need to talk about it. You guys are mature. You know what the deal is. Here's another factor they found out about True Love weights. If more than 30% of the peer group took the pledge, it almost had no effect. What that meant is if you're part of some like really conservative community where like 90% of the girls are just doing it, you're just doing it because everybody else is doing it. The only time it really worked was when less than 30% of the people took it. it almost, you had to be a rebel for abstinence for it to work. You had to be seen as weird for it to work. I don't mean to rip it. It's a good idea. Somebody's got to do Something. We haven't come up with our answer yet, so we can't even offer our answer yet. Maybe we won't have one. But I do want to point out that we've talked about it. We've written books about it. We've read the Bible together. We've even done promise rings and all these crazy things, and it's making no impact. All right, I won't say no impact. That's unfair. They're waiting a little longer, better than nothing. But I don't think that's the goal of the program. What else can we do? I've told you that our challenge is to come up with a better answer. We're only going to do this series for about four or five weeks, maybe less, maybe more, I don't know, until it's done. We got to come up with an answer. You guys will start talking more in the next couple of weeks, I hope. You don't have to confess, just talk. Here's what we're going to do tonight we're going to pull apart some of Satan's lies about what we've been doing. We're going to enter this with a true spirit of confession, and hopefully by the end of the series, we need to learn to grow up, whatever age. And what I mean by grow up is I mean mature as Christians to learn to find self-control over what we're doing, and then basically starting on what Lauren Winter calls that long road to freedom to finally getting to chastity in the right way. You know, i got to tell you something. When I was younger, I wish I could tell you that I was one of those people who lived in darkness for a long time and then came into the light. I wish I could tell you that I was one of those people who, like, oh yeah, well in my non-Christian days, I was a really wild and crazy guy, and then one day I became a Christian, and now I'm just this great guy. That's not true. You know, if there's like... If there's that little kid, you know, you ever watch kids, how they like go through that age where they hate girls? That didn't happen to me. I love girls from the beginning. I've been plagued my whole life with two things that have always been holding me down, I think. A lack of self-control and a strong desire to do what I want to do. And that doesn't work well in Christianity. And I want to tell you that I wasn't a Christian, but that's not true. I want to tell you, but I want to also be honest in a spirit of confession, that this problem is so deep in our church that it affects people like me who are trying to tell you about it. And I feel like I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't tell you that I'm affected by this problem every day. I want to find a solution just as badly as you do. When you guys in your survey results said, hey, we need to do this topic, I was like, oh, no, I don't want to do this topic. This is not a topic I want to talk about. Because in a few moments, you're going to see all the lies that people tell themselves so they can somehow justify their actions. I probably thought of them. I invented them. If Satan wasn't the father of lies, I would be. I thought of all these lies on my own. Some of them I borrowed from other people. But they're all lies. They're not true. You know, it's crazy what you'll do when you want what you want. You know, today, pornography is everywhere in our image. It's everywhere. It's on the Internet. You can find it so easily. When I was young, it wasn't everywhere. You had to work hard to get it. But it's amazing that when you have this insatiable desire to sin, you'll go to all stupid lengths to do anything crazy. My friends and I, when we were like in elementary school, we knew that there was one rack of magazines that sold pornography right outside of this liquor store. And we would think, like, how could we go get some without getting caught? Because we knew the liquor store owner would run outside and yell at us if we went there. But We also knew that it was, like, it was like incredibly expensive. It was like $1.50, which you know, in like 1970, whatever it was when I was in elementary school, that's a lot of money. So we devised this great scheme that we were going to use. We'd all get on our skateboards and, like, one kid at a time would throw a quarter in and keep going, you know? And, like, we'd keep going. And then, like, the last kid would open it and run, you know? So it took, like, six, seven people throwing a quarter into this machine. Like, expect that the guy inside the liquor store isn't noticing that there's, like, seven guys skateboarding outside of a shop throwing quarters into this stupid machine. It sounds like a silly story. It was actually sillier when, when the last guy gets there and it's too late because the quarters have been sitting there too long. we're like, oh, we lost our money. It sounds stupid. I also heard about a pastor this last weekend who drove three hours to find a motel that had free porn because he was just determined that night that he was going to break God's commandments. It stays with us. It doesn't change because they're following some of these lies. Let's go to the next slide. Here's one of the lies. I'm just a physical person. Here's another one that's closely related to it. Everyone struggles in one area or another. This just happens to be the area in which I struggle. This is the easy way to give in. You just say to yourself, Hey, you know what? I'm just a physical person. There are people who aren't physical. They don't care. They don't have to do anything sexual. They don't have to look at pornography. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to have sex with a girlfriend. They don't have to cross the line. Whatever it is, we're going to put it under the large category of just sexual impurity tonight. I'm a physical person. It's it's my struggle. Other people struggle with other things. They struggle with, like, alcohol or something. I'm okay. I don't struggle with that. Other people have problems with, like, I don't know, gossip. (laughs) Why do we always use gossip as an example in the church, you know? Because we can't just say what it is, like, We have problems with sexual impurity in the church. So I'm just a physical person. It's just the way that I am. This is my area to struggle with. This is one of Satan's lies. It's a rationalization. We have to call it for what it is. God told us that we were sexual beings. He didn't say to have sex until we were in marriage. He made it very clear what we were supposed to do. Maybe you're one of the people that used this lie. I want to expose it tonight just by calling it out. I'm not going to tell you every time I used it. That would take all night. I'm just going to tell you that it's a lie. You can't believe this. Let's try another one. Guys just want to have sex so they can brag to their friends that they hit it. I think this is ridiculous. You know where I found this one? In one of those Christian chastity books. They actually are postulating in there that, as they speak to young women, guys only want one thing they just want to have sex with you. You have to guard yourself against that. This is a lie. It's even stupid that it's in this Christian book that all guys want to do is score. Give me a break. There are plenty of guys out there and plenty of girls that are having sex together and it has nothing to do with scoring. They actually think they're doing the right thing or they're in love or some crazy thing like that. They're still violating God's law. But the reason this is a lie is because it's a great thing. You tell people, hey, watch out for guys. They're just trying to score with you. That's all they want. And then you finally meet a guy who's nice and sensitive and interesting. And you think... He's not like one of those guys they warned me about. Closely related to it, for guys, sex is just a physical act that is unconnected with their feelings. That's also in that book. (laughs) Like, who wrote this book? Well, Actually, I know who the authors are, but what planet did they come from? There are plenty of guys out there who can rationalize having sex because it makes them feel closer to somebody emotionally. That doesn't mean it's right. These are like distractions. If we tell young women, hey... The people you need to protect yourself against are the guys who are just trying to hit it, quote-unquote, which is what was in the book. Then they'll spend their whole life looking for that guy, and they won't see the guy who comes up who's like the smooth operator. Or even the well-intentioned guy who looks at her and goes, no, I really do love you. Here's a list of ones that I don't think would have been in most books, but this one was in one of the books I read. Unless there is penetration, it's not sex. I am still a virgin if we never actually have done it. Oral sex does not count as sex. Experimenting with friends is not sex. All lies. If you look at secular society today, surveys, and these came from the surveys, surveys say that most teenagers agree with these statements. There's a confusing message going on, and I think that the lie goes like this. You can't get pregnant unless you have intercourse. You can't get sexually transmitted diseases unless you have intercourse. And you can't really be deemed to have lost your virginity unless you've had intercourse. So what the Bible really is saying is don't have intercourse. And everything else is okay. I think we in the church know this is not true. But we have to tell people openly this is a lie. The sad thing is the people that are in the church agree with the oral sex is not a sex statement too. Those people that took the promise on true love weights, the 6,800 people that were surveyed and the ones that we found out waited only 18 months, that was to have intercourse. If you change the question to, Did you have oral sex or some other type of inappropriate sexual touching, then the numbers were just off the chart. Because we made a technical definition that's not in the Bible, and we lied. We made a rationalization. I use this rationalization. I thought that I could stay on the right side with God by technically not going all the way. By saying, hey, Lord, you know what? I'm going to save myself from marriage and not go all the way. The Lord's way is not to go anywhere at all. Not to measure it with technical definitions. What was it that allowed me to want to believe this lie more than believe Jesus? One more. You can tell this one has a lot of words, so this is a lawyer's justification. Lust is a sin and all sins are equal, at least if I act on my impulses and take care of my lustful thoughts, I will be sinning less, not more. Anyone want to justify that one? We all know it's a lie, but people use this one a lot. People deal with, well, but all sins are equal, so I might as well, like, hey, I can have sex a lot slower than I can think lustful thoughts. I can think lustful thoughts like a thousand a second, but I can only have sex with one person at a time, so therefore I'm sinning less. I had a friend use this one with me. Say, this is like, you know, this is just my way of dealing with sinning less. I think Jesus would like me to just take care of it rather than continuing to lust. He made it so hard with that thing about lusting is the same thing as having adultery. You might as well just do it then. Here's a related one Jesus forgives all sins. I am so good in other areas, I'm sure that He will easily forgive these sins. This falls under the other category of I'm making His crucifixion worth it. Why should he die for like some stupid gossip sin, you know? How many of us really feel that way, though? Ask yourself deep down inside don't we feel that way? Don't we give ourselves credit for the areas we're doing good and kind of allow ourselves a little bit of fudge room for the areas that we're not doing so good? Kind of like a diet. I think, oh, but I worked out this week and I did really good, so I can have this piece of cake. That's kind of the way we approach our sin life. Like, but I'm so good, Lord. I've been praying, I've been reading the Bible. I didn't really do all those other things. I even confessed that one thing, so I'm just gonna have a little sex. We might do it in other areas. I've been doing really good, Lord, and I've been absent, I've been straight, I've been this, I've been that, and you know what? But I just really feel like, oh, I just really feel angry about that person. I am not gonna confess to them. I'm not gonna confess to you. I'm just I just feel like I'm owed this one area. Leave me alone. This is my area. It's a lie. Next slide. Here's a complicated one, but I think it's very popular. You look at the Bible and it uses the word fornication, you know, you're like, what does that mean exactly? So you go look it up in some dictionary, you get real technical. Now you're becoming like a Levitical scholar, you know, what exactly is fornication? Let's take a look at it really carefully. So you find out that fornication defined in some English Bible, by the way. You're not really doing a Greek study here on what Jesus was saying. You're, you're doing an English study out of the Oxford Dictionary. And, and fornication says it refers to immoral sex, illicit sex, or sex without love. And you think, but I love this person. I mean, sure sex is wrong if you're just looking for like gratification, but I'm sure that sex is okay when you're in love. Here's its counterpart. God knows, knows I like it. God knows that we are going to get married. So I'm sure He understands. I mean this is theological. God being the all-knowing God of the universe knows that you love this person and you're gonna get married, so it's all gonna be forgiven my buddy used this one on me when he was engaged well he wasn't even engaged yet he was just dating this girl and she yes he was right she was going to be his wife someday but we didn't know that at the time we don't know for sure and he said he said yeah you know we've been having sex and i'm thinking yeah you're a youth pastor (laughs) like you probably shouldn't be doing that but who was i to tell him you know i was just messed up as he was we're having this conversation. He goes, but you know the way I figure it? He goes, I keep looking at God saying, God, I know you probably don't like this, but, you know, we're going to get married and it's all going to be okay. You know, it's going to be like the retroactive forgiveness thing. The problem with that, how do you know anything? Do you know how many people I knew I was going to get married to in my lifetime? Well, with my wife here, it was only like one. <laughs> only Lena. No, I probably thought it was like three or four people in my lifetime that I thought I was going to get married to. You know, when we had that relationship, it was so good. It was so great. Everything was so wonderful. I, I know we're getting married. I bought the ring for one of them. No, I actually didn't buy it. I was saving up for it. I knew I was wrong. Even in this circumstance, even in a circumstance where you're engaged, if for no other reason, God says, no, it's not right until you're married. Okay, but it's easy to call every one of these things lies. The question is if we know it's wrong, if we know these are lies, why is he making no impact? Because that's what we're gonna ask you in a few minutes. Keep it in mind. We've had the lies. Here's some of the truth. First Peter one thirteen through sixteen. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Listen to what God is asking us to do. He is asking us to be holy. That should be a shocking concept to us. God is holy. God is so holy, he can't tolerate sin in his presence. We cannot exist in his presence in a state of sin. Holiness is not a small word. But that's the standard we're supposed to be keeping. We've had arguments in this group afterwards about people who are like, well, I think this is within the line, I think this is without the line. Here's the standard, be holy. Be as God is. It should leave no doubt. In our minds, that we aren't supposed to be kind of like, well, I'm kind of in the line or I'm in some rationalization. Holiness, a trait that really only God can possess, but we are to strive for holiness. How do we be holy? Go to the next slide. Here's some more from Ephesians. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Not a hint of sexual immorality. By the way, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. These are standards, i got to tell you, I could not, I cannot live up to this standard, but I'm being asked to. Live up to a standard of holiness, to stay away from all obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Not a hint of sexual immorality to be holy. When I had a choice between being sexually pure or crossing the line, I went running over it. Why? I think part of it is because I am immature in an area of my Christian walk and I need to deal with it. Maybe the 75% of the church who's having premarital sex right along with me is immature in the same area. It seems like we can yield our life to Christ in a lot of ways, but we will not give this area up. But Christ tells us that we have to give it up. And not only that, we're taught in the Bible that when we accept Christ, something is supposed to change in us. This area, for many of us, is not changing. Look at this next slide right here. This is more of the truth. You know this verse. It's from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are supposed to be a new creation. I think in this area, I've never been a new creation, I've been my own creation. I've refused to give this part up to God because I think, well, I can do better in this area. Trust me on this one. I'll come up with a rationalization. i will all be okay. We'll work it out somehow. You're going to forgive me in the end. It's cool. Next week, we're going to start talking about the harm that comes from not following God's rules. Because I think the question that is in the back of so many people's minds when we talk about this subject is, all right, we know we're not supposed to do it. We know we're not supposed to do it. You've, you've beat it into us. Why are we not supposed to do it? I think if you just tell people not to do something, they just want to know why, or they'll just do it. We're going to actually address the issue of why God told us this. And I hope we address it a little differently than just the big, like, shame on you, no, no, don't do that again. We're going to really address why, maybe in a heartfelt way. Here's more scripture, Hebrews 10, 22, and 24. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed pure with pure water. Sounds like one of those nice verses in the Bible. What's it saying? We have already been washed clean by Christ. We need to come together to support one another in staying that way. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess For he who promised is faithful. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We have a responsibility to meet together, to support one another, to work together, to encourage one another, to stay clean and pure. What's interesting is this verse is right next to the one that comes right after it. And it leaves us a very harsh warning on what happens if we don't hear these words. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now I'll tell you in fairness that these words are first very harsh and some people interpret these words to mean that you've come to a point in your life where you're so far in your intentional sinning that you've actually walked away from God completely. But whether you interpret them that way or not, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, Christ made you pure, we're supposed to encourage one another to stay that way, but here's a warning to those people who sin intentionally knowing that they're not supposed to. We are making a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. He makes it akin here to trampling it underfoot as if we put Christ's sacrifice down and step on it. Mash it into the ground and make a mockery of the sacrifice. So basically, once we've defiled the very sacrifice that saves us, there's nothing left to save us. And he says, then it will be a terrifying moment to fall into the hands of the living God because we won't have any sacrifice left to save us. We've already made a mockery of it and trampled it. I'm not saying that I believe we can lose our salvation. That's why I think the proper interpretation of this verse probably has to do with people who've gone so far down the path that they have left God behind. It's one of the consequences of sin, especially sexual sin, is it keeps us away from God. It's really, really hard to come into God's presence when you've just done something really bad sexually. You could feel so bad at that moment, you think, I don't even think Jesus wants to talk to me. And story after story that I'm reading in these books that are written by young men and women who are writing about their experiences, the one thing I can identify in all of them is they have this big guilt. Whether it should be there or it shouldn't, I don't know, but they have it. And it prevents them from having an effective relationship with God because it takes them years to unwind the guilt. I don't know who put it there. Maybe it's good to have some guilt. Maybe the church put guilt on them. Maybe their parents put guilt on them. Maybe some of them, they just have guilt. I don't know. Maybe it's their conscience, but it is preventing them from even sometimes coming to asking forgiveness because they just feel so guilty they feel like they don't even deserve it anymore. So you see the lies. You see what the Bible says are truth. You can even see the stern warning that some bad consequences. I'm not going to say that you lose your salvation. I think that's not true. Are Christians having sex as a result of low self-esteem? If you read the women's chastity books, that's what they're all saying. That women have poor self-esteem so we need to find... Our love in a man, so we let him into our bodies. That's what the So if you just have better self-esteem and you look in the mirror and you say, I like myself, you'll be more likely not to have sex. I it's probably true. Are Christians having sex out of despair? Or out of a I might as well mentality? Some people are like, you know what, so much bad stuff has happened to me, so much bad stuff I've done. Who cares? I might as well just have sex. I remember when Ray Wheeler, one of the pastors at our church, one of our speaking pastors, came and He was talking about the day he got fired. I mean, Ray Wheeler was the head of our elder board. I was really proud of him for being transparent enough and vulnerable enough to admit this in front of an entire congregation of people. But I guess if you're the head of the elder board, you could probably fire the congregation if they don't like it. But he stood in front of the congregation and said, the day I got fired from my job, I was so mad. I thought I'd done everything right. I was so mad at God and me and the people. that I just went home and just downloaded porn all afternoon. It was like out of despair, like, you know what? Screw it. I just might as well just do the worst things I could think of. Like, who cares? It's not working. Whatever I'm doing right is not working, so forget it. I might as well just do it. Is that the reason Christians are having sex? Are Christians having sex because of past abuse or experience? I read stories in these books about people who've been abused when they were young and thought, you know what? I've already been violated. I don't care anymore. I think that's a sad state of affairs for our world, but that's part of it. Other people who thought, you know what? I've already had sex. It's over for me. I'm not a virgin anymore. Why even, like, pretend? I messed up once. I might as well mess up a million times. All sins are equal. Who cares? God's never going to love me for being a virgin anymore. It's too late. I'm I'm done. Are we having sex because we're told not to? That daring, adventurous side of us? It's a taboo area, so I'm going to see how far I can get. They told me not to do it, so I'm going to see. Like I, you know, why not? I got to find this out for myself. Are Christians having sex because we have no self control or because we can't stop ourselves physically? (laughs) I love this one. So many of the Christian chastity books they they describe men like we have this button. Like once you press it, like we go straight from kissing to sex, and there's no stopping us. There's just no stopping us. I mean, just that's it. You just you press the button. Or are Christians having sex just because we want to? I don't disagree that all of those things are factors. But if you ask me to vote on one of them, I think Christians are having sex just because we want to. I'm not, I don't want to denigrate any of those other factors because I think they are factors, and I wouldn't have put them on the screen if I didn't think so, and they wouldn't be in all the books that I read if they weren't at least factors. But I think the reason is because we want to. I know he knows what's right for me. I know he knows better than I do what's right for me. I know he told me to be sexually pure. I know that he disagrees with what I'm about to do, but I love this girl, and I want to be intimate with her. I want to go where I want to go, and I don't want anybody telling me to stop. I have my own reasons, my own justifications, my own rationalizations, my own lies. In the end, I'm a sinner anyways, right? You might as well just count this one as one more sin against me. So that's my perspective. What's yours? Eric? I think that my uh, young people today just uh, if society deems having sex with another person is just like an okay thing to do, and there's other things like stealing, they may rate those as a higher uh, sin. level. Just I think uh church is really, really losing impact in America itself. So church is losing impact and there's no societal laws. Like morality, like morality doesn't Really addresses because actually it's the other way around. Like actually we're liberating that. I mean we're telling people like, I mean look at the cover of like teen people or whatever it is a teen magazine's like, you know sixteen ways to know are you hot or not like whatever it is or you know how to how to how to make him want you all these kind of crazy notions. There was one crazy one that there's a there's a you know the what would Jesus do bracelets. <laughs> There was one that was actually kind of funny. There was a guy who was talking about, he, got, he gets all his morality from Madonna. <laughs> and the author of the book was saying, wouldn't it be great if you walked around with what would Madonna do bracelet? I mean, what would that lead to? Where would society be then? Vicky?" I think also, as Christians, we don't necessarily get the answers, because you turn on love lands and you get and they're going through all those, like, any anyway. night. That's where they're going to turn because AIDS on popular radio. I think that's a very good observation. I mean, first of all, you're right. All the good sex content programs that are addressing those issues, like Loveline, I mean, which has been on the air for, I think, almost 20 years now, they give good information the church doesn't give. The church is too afraid to talk about it. And I think you're right also that they have a secular bend so that they're not going to give Christian advice or Christian moral advice. So they're going to give more of a humanistic approach. And I think finally, the other statement you made that I think is correct also just deals with our kind of fear in the church to talk about it in general. But I found that in reading these books, that there's a big debate on how much information you give to teens and to young people about sex in dealing with sexual purity. I even think that, for example, when Mrs. Lenz comes in to talk about sexual purity, that she and I would disagree on how much information is enough. The book that I was reading, Every Young Woman's Battle, she thought gave too much information and I thought wasn't real enough. I mean, it made certain statements that I thought like, well, that's all well and good, but I just don't know that that's real enough or it doesn't really quite answer the issue. And the most poignant comment you is we don't answer the why theologically. And Lauren makes, Lauren Winter makes that same point in her book, Real Sex, which is that every answer the church has given about why sex is not good for us, is like theologically empty. It's like we have good reasons in almost every other area. We can like make all these apologetical arguments about everything, but when it comes to sex, it's really just don't do it. It leads to sexual impurity without really getting into why. And I mean, I think there are some great reasons, and I think even if you listen to some great lectures, we'll still walk away and we'll still want to do it. But I agree that we're not doing a good job of explaining why. I want to spend that time next week talking about the why, Jess. I think um, another thing you could have added there is as a factor of um, how old we are when we're expected to finally become adults and get married. And we're sexually cooking during times when normally, like, well, a long time ago, they were getting married, you know, 14, and 13. And so I think that's another reason it's a bigger problem now, not as an excuse to, you know, say is Christians are, but that's a factor. Yeah. I think it's a factor that we're waiting longer to get married, but I think it's a bigger factor that you can't go anywhere in our society today without getting a sexual cue. Yeah, and I think the uh, whole sexual liberation thing is a result of the way the culture is set up now, because we want to feel like adults by now, and that's one way of expressing it. Well. Christians are bombarded like everybody else is bombarded. I mean, we're in the culture every day. The the cues that are sent to us are just unbelievable. But I also think that they're not unwelcome. That's the problem. We don't look at them and go, this is shocking. Like, I can't look at this. But I think if we spend all our time addressing what the problem is in the world, we miss the bigger issue. What's the problem with us? And I know it's very controversial because... We are called to be in the world. We need to be in the world. We need to understand the world. And and I am a big proponent of being in the world and even sometimes rolling up my sleeves and getting a little dirty if that will get me closer to somebody who's in the world. I am not trying to go for some like pharisaical separation from the world. Now, we're supposed to be pure, but at the same time, when I'm listening to the song lyrics or when I'm looking at these magazines or when I'm involved in my day-to-day work, this stuff gets in you. And that's why the question keeps coming up over and over, like, is it just because we want to? I mean, sure, I could give you examples of times when the, like, society kind of puts it in your way, but that's the kind of thing that we have to guard ourselves against. I don't think we could separate ourselves from the culture. I don't think we can change the culture, but we might be able to guard ourselves a little bit from some of the stuff that's in- infecting us. you get mad the you know, the statistics on young married Christians who get married so they can just get the whole thing over with are not very good. I know that we, you probably all know people who got married at like 19 or 20. I don't know how they're doing, but the statistics don't look so good for them. This is probably outside the topic a little bit, but here's a freebie for all the people that are sitting here. People change from the ages of 18, 19, 20, 21, especially women. Women change. Women are way more mature than men throughout their teens. And then like around 18 or 19, they're still like more mature than most guys. But when you're 19 or 18, you'll be a different woman by the time you're 25. And if you get married to somebody at 19, you might still make it through and still be married, but you're going to go through a real upheaval, I believe, by the time you get to 24, or 25, because you might wake up and realize you're married to a different person than who you married. And, and then the guy changes too, but there's just a radical change that goes on. And by the way, I think it's for the better. It's a good change, but you might still... The earth has moved under your feet. I mean, you're trying to quench the problem rather than really address it. You're going to have a whole host of other problems. We're not here to have a marriage seminar, but... But I think, yes, Vicky, you're right. Getting married to have sex, bad idea. And getting married at 21 just because you have a burning desire for the person you met at the Christian school, even a worse idea. You know, because at that point, you don't know. Are you confusing, like, your hormones with love? I mean, you know, do you know? I mean, if you've been going through, like, two or three relationships already and you know what love is, okay, maybe you know what's going on and you found the right person. I'm not saying it could never work. But I just see these people who are, like, they fall in love for the first time and he's so great and he plays the guitar and he's so holy Ah, oh, he has so much air in his voice when he sings his worship songs. And I'm so in love with him. He's a godly man. And, oh, I have such a desire for him. And they get together and boom, they're like married and having sex. And like two years later, they're like, who is this person? Why did I marry them? We're still just scratching the surface. We still don't know. But I bet that it's because Christians want to. I'm trying to cast the light into the lies. I was 20 years old and I was on my way to seminary and trying to be a youth pastor, myself, struggling with all these issues as a young person. And I remember teaching on that Hebrews passage, teaching on cleanliness and purity, and teaching on sinning deliberately before the Lord. I remember the day I was teaching that lesson. It was July 5th. I remember that day because that was the same day that I gave up my ministry so that I could throw it all away for a woman. And that relationship was not pure. It shocks me to this day that I actually sat there and taught a lesson on purity and on intentional sin and waited about three hours before I violated every part of it. And the consequence in my life was I got thrown out of the ministry. And the ironic thing was it wasn't by my church. My church never even knew about it. God knew that my heart was no longer pure. But that even trying to stand before him like a hypocrite saying, I'm going to be a youth minister for you i'm going to be a minister of the gospel and not even being able to control myself in a way and no one at the church knew but miraculously within like days every single ministry i was involved in either dried up shut down something happened it it just unbelievable and i was left like you know while i had like 12 jobs at the church i had zero within a month. And I was no longer going to seminary, and I no longer had my internship, and I no longer had anything, and I just sat there with no one to talk to but God about the problem, saying, all right, that was fair, I understand. And spending the rest of my 20s struggling with how to come back into ministry and how to come back to purity. But the Lord worked in me, and there is hope to do it, but I will tell you that for a long, long time, I'm in the bottom of that list down there just because I wanted to we got to figure out a way to stop wanting to as a group. I hope that's what we do over the next couple of weeks. Next week we're going to address what Vicky pointed out, we're going to address the why is Jesus telling us not to do this? Cuz maybe then we'll actually understand why to stay away from it, you know. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a heavy topic. Every week I question whether you really want us to press forward and keep doing this. But, Lord, I know of no other way to take on these topics than with truth and light that hurts to talk about. Maybe that light finds us where we're uncomfortable, where we're hiding. But, Lord, this is a prevalent problem, and and praise God if nobody in this room struggles with that problem, Lord. Then, true to Exodus, we're studying it only so that we can help other people and equip ourselves to deal with it in others. Because maybe we do know people who are struggling with sex and sexual addiction and just sexual impurity. Maybe they're happy doing what they're doing. Maybe they don't even know they're addicted. Maybe they're just in love and doing it because they want to and because they feel it's right. Lord, we need tools to be able to talk to those people to explain what your word says. We need tools to be able to explain to them how it can hurt them and how it hurts you, Lord. Lord, I know that no matter what, It's a sin. We can't lie about it. We can't justify it. We can't rationalize it. And you promise us that sin hurts us. It causes death in us. But Lord, I'm begging you as we go on with this series that you would help use your Holy Spirit to reveal to us why it's hurtful. I know I don't have to know the reasons, but I'm asking you to help us understand them anyways. I'm asking you to do something provocative in Exodus. I'm asking you to do something different to help us, Lord, so we can understand what it is that is so wrong. Let us fight with all our might. In your precious name. Amen.